This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome back to the Investors Roundtable. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and uh, you are watching this episode on the SNN Network YouTube channel. So if you like what you see, you want to be uh, notified uh, when each new episode is up, go to youtube.com forward slash backslash forward slash SNN Wire and uh, click. There's like a little uh, alarm button. You can set a reminder for uh, uh, each new episode that can uh, posted. So uh, as I said, this is the third episode. We have a few familiar faces. I think we're, we got a rapport going, guys. I think this is going to be our lineup each week, you know, but uh, I'm, I'm excited to have back uh, Adrian Day from Adrian Day Asset Management, Stephen Keel from Willow Oak, uh, Kevin Shea, full-time microcap investor, microcap club contributor, and Jerome Neymar from One Main Capital. Gentlemen, thank you again for joining me today. Thank you. Yeah, great to be here. So let's dig right in. One of the first topics that actually came in uh, from you, Stephen, was uh, talking a little. I mean, talking a little Tesla. You know, why not? Uh, that, that's a good. I think that's a good way to start off. Uh, full disclosure: I am not a shareholder of Tesla. Um, you know, wrote in that it finished. I think above fourteen hundred. I think that was a day or two ago because it's just under fourteen hundred right now. So you know, what what does this mean for for overall markets? So uh, you know, the floor is yours, Stephen. Let's start there. <laughs> well, I think. Uh... All of us probably who are fundamental investors have uh, some opinions on that, and and you know not it, clearly not connected to to any sort of uh, fundamental view on the company. And um, you know I think the the main thing is they raised money at uh, seven hundred something dollars a share. Uh, they you know Musk had said it was getting a little pricey somewhere around that level, and now it's twice that level. Uh, so, you know, I've seen comments. One thing that I th thought was especially interesting about it is I saw some comments uh, online and, and uh, in some of the newsletters and things that, hey, they should raise, raise capital again, right, at $1,400 a share. I don't think they can. You know, they might have been able to do it at 700 which was still kind of disconnected from reality, and now we're twice that. But who's going to give them a couple billion dollars for that, you know? Um, I don't think there's enough volume there in kind of the retail trade. I, I totally could be wrong. I was probably had the same opinion at $700 and was wrong, that it's twice that. But to go out there and raise any meaningful amount of money, I just I don't see that there's actually enough kind of demand to, to do that uh, at this level. Um, but, you know, look, I'm not long. I'm not short, thankfully. Uh, if I was going to be short, I'd, I'd probably do it through, uh, well, I would not do it through the equity itself, do it through options. Um, but it's, it's just a wild ride to watch. I mean, let's, I, let's, I mean, oh, I, sorry, I, you're kind on, of, I kind of disagree that there wouldn't be enough demand. I mean, you see, saw Hertz, right? They were going to raise, there was enough <laughs> demand for Hertz in bankruptcy. Um, clearly, there's enough demand for the stock at a thousand bucks a share to drive it to 1400 bucks a share. So they, I think they could get a deal done at a discount. Um, I think Musk values having a low float. So that's kind of one consideration for not wanting to do it. Um, but I, I, I personally think they should. I mean, I think to your point, like why is a stock gone from 700 to 1400? 
and I have no position in the stock, but like, um, I, th I think it's partially because he said he was going to be profitable for the fourth quarter in a row, which makes him eligible for S and P index inclusion. And I think that there's a lot of ARB desks that, you know, figure that type of stuff out and they go out and buy it. And maybe there's some retail speculation in there as well. But if it gets into the S&P 500, I think there's a lot of stock to buy, and it's a pretty low-flow stock. I don't think Ron Barron is selling his shares. Uh, Kathy Wood isn't selling her shares. Um, Larry Ellison isn't, isn't Ellison isn't isn't going to sell his shares. Elon Musk isn't selling his. So like, the stock has to go up, and like, I don't think it's fun. It's crazy that it's like, what's the market cap now? Like to over 200 billion, and. Um, and the fundamentals, I don't think justify it, but like from a technical standpoint, I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of demands. That yeah, was yeah. very, very understated of you. I don't think, I mean, it's so divorced from reality, but it's yeah. crazy. But to me, it's a, and we are short by the way, but to me, it's a classic case of what can happen in a market like this. There's so much excess money out there. Um, as you say, it's a low float, so there's excess money chasing um, fewer, you know, fewer shares in this particular case. And the other thing that's very important about Tesla, I think, yes, there's some established names in, in the stock, and they've been there for many, many years, of course, people that you just mentioned, your own. But um, in addition, this has just become, a, it seems, a darling of the, uh, well, I'm going to speak like a grumpy old man now, <laughs> but uh, it's become a darling of the sort of millennial investor, uh, particularly the neophyte investor. I mean, I don't know if anyone's watched some of those those delightful videos of people telling you how to buy Tesla stock, and they'll actually they'll actually say things like, "Well, you know, I don't really understand this, but you know, if you if you do options, I mean, you can make even more money on this." And I don't really understand it, but boy, this is a way to go. And I'm thinking, this is just a mania. Um, we're losing money on our shorts. <laughs> uh, you know, to that to that point, though, on the options going long, the options and some of these message boards and other things like that. I don't know about you guys, but I, I mean, when I first started investing. I don't even think I was eligible to trade options. I certainly, you know, didn't start trading until eight or nine years in. And uh, I don't think uh, the brokerage account would have granted me the ability to do that uh, in the first couple of years uh, or something like that. So, so that, I mean, I think that plays something, something into it. And certainly it's, you know, the Robinhood uh, purchases and things like that. Um, you know, look, it's going to blow up at some point. Um, you know, if Adrian's position gets blown out first because it goes to two thousand dollars a share or something, that's that's entirely possible. Just as just as possible as it's it's going to blow up in three years. Um, and look, they got the robo taxis coming out in six months, according to uh, to, to Musk's uh, tweet from a year or so ago. So uh, maybe that's what's driving. It. I mean, look, there's a lot of defenders of the stock. There are people who are just like Musk is a religion, and Musk we trust. Um, people like to buy stocks that go up right now. So there's a lot of momentum chasing it. And like right. from a fundamental standpoint, I agree with you guys, it makes no sense. But like the narrative that I think people are buying into is, um, I, I don't know, I mean, I don't remember how many cars are sold globally right now a year. It's like 60 or 80 million or something like that, I think. And um, right now, a very small percentage of those are electric vehicles. And I think the bet that people are, or signing up for is that one day it's going to be a hundred percent of the cars made are going to be electric vehicles. 
and Tesla is going to have some crazy market share of that because like I'm to be honest I'm kind of surprised by the fact that all these huge global auto OEMs with huge research budgets um, and huge and, and a lot of cash on their balance sheet like it's taking them so long to come out with a compelling competing product um, which is crazy like I don't understand what they've been doing they like, do it profitably that's the problem yeah but yeah, but, yeah but, but just invest and get it done right the market's value the, the market's the market's paying you to come out with a product that's gonna compete in that type of market environment and I, I mean I don't know I guess if you can't do it profitably I guess to your point like maybe it doesn't make sense but like I think people are saying get the revenue as long as you could you could get to some crazy revenue number in 20 years without diluting yourself too much, which Musk, to his credit, part, part, part of it is reflexive because the stock's gone up, so he's been able to issue equity without diluting himself a lot. But if you could get to some crazy big revenue number without diluting yourself a lot, eventually the margins will be there one day, and then you're gonna have a big profit pool for your shareholders. So I think like that's the bet people are making. I mean, I don't think he's gonna have this robo-taxi fleet. I don't, I don't even know if the longs who like hype it up will do that. Yeah. I do think they think he's going to have a big share of a very big addressable market. And if he could do it without getting diluted significantly along the way, there's going to be a very big profit pool there for everyone. And I, I don't, I mean, again, I, I don't think the fundamentals justify the price today, but like when you have a religion with a low float stock with momentum that people want with a, a product that people love and a CEO that people love, I, I guess it's just like the perfect recipe. Next time I see something like that, even if I think the stock's overvalued, I should probably just get along. <laughs> I think just that's to, a good takeaway. <laughs> just to throw in what Adrian was talking about, um, it is a mania. And you can see it in the, in the general market. You look at these, some of these names like um, Solo, S-O-L-O, or A-Y-R-O, which I actually, I don't own them. I owned them about three days ago. And they went up 100%, you know, so there is that absolute mania right now about uh, electric vehicles. And it might very well be either, uh, as Adrian was saying, millennials getting crazy or people chasing everything that's electric because, because of what we're talking about is that Tesla was actually leading the pack. The interesting thing about it is I have to bite my tongue so often because I used to be a management consultant at Ford Motor Company, spent a ton of time with them. And I still know people who are engaged in this stuff, okay? And they laugh at the idea of autonomous vehicles coming out of Tesla, okay? They know what the real problems are, okay? And they won't, they won't produce a vehicle until they are absolutely 100% sure that they can actually drive a car around. They've driven the Teslas around and they sit down and say, I, I'm not even gonna go touch it. I'm not, I'm not gonna let my wife drive that car autonomously. So there are some massive amounts of research that are being done within these large companies. Um, they're quiet about it. I mean, they're, I mean they're, they're, they're Detroit conservatives, you know, they're not going to go out there and pump the whole thing. It's, it's fascinating. And the other part about it is, is that I keep tell, hearing people say, well, it's not an automobile company. It's a software company. Yeah. And I just scratched my head, you know, yeah. because as I said, I've, I've spent a, a ton of time with Ford. I can't tell you how many lines of code they write a year and it all works. Literally, it all works. Um, they're afraid that if they, if they miss one line of code, they're going to get their asses handed to them faster than they took a stick at. So from, from the perspective of what are these guys doing in research, there's a ton of money being 
I don't mean autonomy. I mean electric. They're two separate. Oh, they've been doing, I'll tell you something else about my involvement with the automobile companies. I was involved with the GM EV1 program, which was back in 1995. So they've been at it for a while. They've always been doing work. You know, in 1995, they probably, GM probably said, well, this is never going to be anything. So it was just kind of a set aside. But I'm telling you, they're working, they're working diligently. The thing, the thing that bothers me most about it, like I get Musk needs to have narrative control because it's kind of reflexive. The ability to get to a big revenue number without dilution depends on the stock price to a big, large degree. So he needs to lie, cheat, and steal to keep the stock price as high as possible. Sure. But the fact, the fact that he's able to get away with all the lying and manipulative behavior without any uh, retribution or anything like that, and the fact that his supporters will support anything he does, no matter what he does, like they will never say what he did was wrong. Right. It does, I mean, it, it bothers me. I, I don't want to live in a world where like that's okay, but it is okay. You know, you can't fight. Well, I'm sure that Adrian was probably shorting the stock when Musk was smoking dope on on the uh, conference call. <laughs> <That's laughs> that really, I'm sure that really set you up there, Adrian. You're going to get more negative comments for this video for 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 this week's episode than probably you've ever gotten, or more. There'll be more views. It'll be spread around on. Oh, Twitter. I have a buddy. Let me that's tell you, I, I have a good I have a good friend who's who who hosts a Tesla show and and channel and. Uh, I'm sending it right to him because I, I, I'm going to tell he's going to come on next week and show you guys all up. I don't want any death threats from people who I don't want any death threats from people who like him. So like I think I think he's doing great things for the world. I just don't necessarily agree with the way he's going about it. But sometimes I guess the means justify the ends. And uh, right, I mean, no, like we I think we can all agree here. Like we'd love to see a more electric vehicles and. Uh, less fossil fuels and less dependent on all that. You know, we want to see environmental change. I mean, Kevin, I, I know you do for sure. Like you were just on a hike 10 minutes ago. Like we want to preserve our hikes. We want to preserve our nature and, and everything like that. You know, at the same time, we want to make sure that, you know, it's being done sustainably and, you know, just being done the right way. And honestly, yeah. Honestly, profitably. Profitably. Without the cars catching fire. I'll take the death threats. If you're buying it at this price, <laughs> you're a complete idiot. With the caveat that if you've read Soros's and the reflexivity and you understand all of that and you're long because of that, kudos to you. <laughs> but if you don't know that argument as an, as an investor, you're an idiot. You're a complete idiot. Don't worry, I'm going to have Chris on. I'm going to have a rich, rich, rich idiot. Dude, we're gonna have a rich idiot, yeah. and you know what? I'd rather be uh, smart and uh, poor than rich and got it. You know, it's very risky <laughs> is the point. It's very risky. You might be rich now, but you know this is the problem. When you go to the casino, right, and you win your first hand the first time you're gambling, and you you know you, you win big. Now you're hooked for life, and you're gonna lose so much more money over a lifetime than you gained in that the, that first trip. And that's what's happening, I think, to a lot of these investors. These these uh these kind of young investors and retail investors who don't know what they're doing. They might be winning now and they might be excited about this and, you know, kudos to them, but they're not going to, they're not going to stop. Steven, they're going to know exactly when to walk away. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. You're oh, right. exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll say if I may, the best thing that ever happened to me in my investing career was to lose about 90% of my money on my very first junior gold stock. I said, Oh, this isn't quite as easy as I thought it was. And and I tell you, that was that was the best thing that's ever happened to me. Absolutely. Well, let's answer the second part of that question that Stephen posed. You know, what does this mean for overall markets? You know, what what do you guys think about that? 
I mean, I'll, I'll leave that off, I suppose, then, if, if you're kicking it over to me, too, that, you know, look, there's, Tesla's not the only one like this. Nikola, um, that, that new, you know, EV Nikola, company yep. as well, and there's, there's others like this, yep. um, you know, all the way across the board. Um, and, you know, it, what it says is that uh, you do have that kind of reflexology going on, you've got easy money, um, and, you know, quite frankly, with interest rates as low as they are, um, and terminal, you know, terminal rates uh, lower and things like that, you're gonna, look, they should be higher valuations now than they were, in, you know, in the 80s and 90s. And so that's, that's a fair thing. And it's difficult for maybe value investors, more traditional value investors to accept that. Um, but at the same time, when you have completely speculative companies uh, that are trading completely disconnected from reality, you know, look, Thankfully, Hertz did not do the, you know, the offering that was pulled. Um, but the fact that it was a possibility is, uh, you know, on one hand, you could say it's disturbing. On the other hand, you could say, it, you know, it's, it's kind of funny uh, and it is what it is. And life is bizarre right now. Um, and, and, and here we are. But uh, that's not a sustainable way to, to go about investing. And I think there's a, a huge piece of the market right now uh, in in that same situation that Tesla is exemplifying. Yeah, I mean, I, my view is that I think you have a subset of the market that is extremely far out on the risk curve, yep. like very far, very speculative. My in intuition says that that's not a vast majority of participants. Like most rational investors that manage a lot of capital that I speak to or who work at big funds or whoever are just as confused by this price action. It's not like everyone's at the party drinking the Kool-Aid and like, I'm the only one not doing it. Um, so like, yes, I do think if those guys get burned and they have to degross and delever and they blow up, like it could lead to a little bit of pain, but I just, I personally don't think it's like super, super systemic yet. I do think you have to differentiate between uh, companies where there's a ton of secular growth ahead that's very high likelihood and a lot, a huge profit pool that they're going to make at some, with a very high level of confidence at some point, five, 10, 15, 20 years out, that you're now discounting that huge profit pool at a lower discount rate. So you're ending up with a higher present value. That's one type of, you know, these growthy investments where like the valuations might not make sense to me, but maybe I'm just using a different uh, discount rate than other people. And then there's other situations where like, the terminal value 30 years out, in my opinion, won't even equal the share price today. Forget discounting the stock price back. Like, I don't even know if you had, if the discount rate was zero that you were applying, I don't even know how you'd make a return from today's price. And that's the part where I, I, I just think like, you hear amateur investors saying they're long-term, so they don't care about the near term. But like, if you're long-term, the stock still needs to be, the, the company's value still needs to equal today's value or more in the long term. Like you have, no matter how much time passes, if the company won't ever be worth or generate the cash of the, today's enterprise value, like you could wait forever. I don't care how, how long term but, you are. But, so how I, did, I do, how, I'm sorry, how, how, would, how would this compare, um, the comments that you're making right now, you're wrong. How does this compare to the weed uh, mania? I'll use that word. Uh, what was that a year and a half or two years ago when Tilray went to 300 bucks what is it now? Three dollars or something like that. I mean, yeah. so we can actually we can actually look across the spectrum and find similar reality, similar similar activities that were going on in the market that were mania like, um, that were that were similar to what you're looking at today. So you know, is it just that we're repeating history, 
you know, and the same thing happened. And I'll say the same thing about the blockchain. I don't think that was as, as sustainable as uh, some of the weed stuff was. But again, you had a mania going on there for a very short period of time. And I agree with you that not everybody was playing it because it was totally stupid. Um, but, you, you know, you go through these periods in which there, there seemed to be, you know, I, I love the word mania. Um, and the, the, the interesting thing about it is, you know, we talked about this before. Can you make money um, being able to bet the mania and ride, as Adrian was saying, ride the crazies and know when to get out because presumably we're smarter than the next guy, you know? I mean, look, I think the weed, the weed stuff back then and the SPAC stuff today, yeah. um, I think that's the part where I was saying, like, I don't, and, and Hertz, for example, and, um, you know, I, I'll leave it at that. I don't know any of those. I don't own SPACs. I don't own Hertz. I'm not short on my lung. But those are the, the types of situations where I'm like, the future value probably won't equal today's right. value, and they're really speculative. But if you look at the crazy, crazy expensive stuff, it's actually really high quality that a lot of people are like, how is it trading there? Like, I'm fairly confident, like, Amazon, for example's profits in 10 years are going to be significantly higher than they are today. You, and like, I think the enterprise value um, today is just you, people using a, a, a lower discount rate for that big profit pool. Same with like some of these SaaS names, the Octas of the world, like payments names, the squares of the world. Like, I think those guys have great mousetraps and I think they're going to have a big profit pool attributable to those mousetraps. And whatever discount rate the market is deciding to use to discount those profit pools, I think has come down meaningfully. People are just willing to accept lower IRRs between now and year 10, year 20, whenever you're, you're using for your terminal year. And so, like, if you just think the valuation's crazy, I'm telling you, I believe they're, they're going to grow into that. They might not provide a great return right. from here to there, but I think they're going to, if you look out long enough, I think they'll grow into them. Whereas other situations, the Hertz bankruptcy is the best example. No matter how long you wait, you're not going to grow into that. I, I, I personally think with Tesla, I think you're going to have a hard time growing into it. But I know what I know what people are buying into. I'm not confident that what they're buying into is going to work. I would pick the other side of that bet if I had to pick a side. But like with Amazon, I would not pick the other side of that bet. Like I think if you force me to go long or short Amazon for 10 years and close my eyes, there's no way I would short it. Just no, right. no so are you are you familiar? I, I I need to pull the guy's name up. It's a little bit. It's an he's an Indian name and it's a long one. I don't remember, but he 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 uh, he actually found people calling him Doctor Deodorant because they were doing an auto check on him. You know this guy I'm talking about? He does a lot of work on on valuations using terminal values and things of that type. He goes into incredible detail about the about the comment about the the specifics that you're talking about, but he's looking at these things, you know, long-term 10 years, et cetera, at all. He might be very interesting to you. I'm going to go, I'm going to see if I can find his name. Yeah, yeah, be interesting. Be you know, one of the things you, I, I agree with what you said, your own about companies that have, you know, real, real growth prospects in the long term. I think one of the problems with uh, what I call, you know, manias about new things, whether it's electric vehicles or whether it's, in, in the resource space, whether it's rare earths or, you know, these things come around in cycles every few years. Marijuana is a good example. Um, people rush into it because all they have such narrow view and all they're focusing on is the market. The market potential is huge. You know, once the states start legalizing this stuff, everyone's going to be running around smoking it. 
And so look at the size of a market and look how much they can gain. And, and it's the same with rare earths. You know, everybody has a cell phone, so everybody needs whatever it is, and iridium or something. And there's only so much being mined in the world, et cetera. But what they forget, and I can talk perhaps a little bit uh, in, in with more uh, knowledge on, on the resource base, but what they forget is, number one, valuation still matters. Number two, you're typically investing, when you look at the size of a market and everything else, you're doing what everybody else has already done. So the price of a stock is already reflecting to a large extent that, that expanded market. But number three, what you're forgetting is competition. Now, I don't know what the competition for weed is, maybe it's cocaine, I don't know. But certainly when you look at old palladium, well, platinum's an alternative, and if that gets too expensive, rhodium's an alternative. And if that gets too expensive, there's lithium. And there's well, it's, not even, it's not even that type of competition. It's the size of the market has nothing to do with the size of the profit pool of that market because competition within that Absolutely. market. Is good, so. Absolutely. And so the same with electric vehicles. As you, we've been talking about, all the different companies are doing research. You know, I can guarantee, not guarantee, I, you know, in five or 10 years' time, you know, when BMW and Mercedes and all these other, and Ford have their own electric vehicles, they're going to be competing with Tesla at the high end, at the low end, at every end you're going to look at. And um, people forget that you're going to have that kind of competition. What's taking them so long? Well, let's return to our auto expert. <laughs> it's, it's dealing with reality. You know, it's, it is indeed, um, I mean, they're plodding along. They're gonna, they're gonna come up with a car that's actually affordable, and that's one, the other thing about it is, And the other thing about it also is, is that don't ask, don't ask anything about the reliability of, of Teslas. Okay, they absolutely suck. Okay, yeah, but the owners, the owners don't care. The owners it's, love it. It's the exact same thing. This is the exact same thing that happens with Mercedes Benz. Okay, people buy technology out of, out of that. And the other thing that happened years ago in in Toyota. Okay, no one who owned the Toyota would ever sit down and say I had a bad, I had a bad prop, I had a bad uh, experience with it or an issue with it. So there's some interesting uh, social aspects to um, to accepting to the acceptable. I want that car because it reflects my my personal um, choices in in the way in which I'm going to live. Okay, and the other thing about it that cracks me up is that the initial Teslas, okay, they were in fact um, subsidized, of course. Okay, and they were subsidies for rich people. You couldn't buy it unless you had a hundred thousand dollars. So, so there's the someone like Ford would get their ass handed to them if they ever said, "I wanted a subsidy, okay, and I'm going to sell the car for hundred thousand dollars when only thirty thousand people can afford it." Um, they they watch their their um, goodwill. They they watch their historic perspective on the markets and things of that type whether or not it's Ford or Mercedes or BMW or whomever, they all do the same thing. And so you've mentioned it, that, that, that Tesla is way out in space. I mean, that's great, okay? I don't, and I and Adrian probably don't think it's long lasting, <clears throat> but you know, some people do. It's really, it's, it's, it's an interesting situation when you, as I said, I spent over 10 years working with uh, car companies and um, it's shocking what people think they do and what they do do. By the way, I didn't find the guy's name for you. I did. I did go up. I, I was checking. I was checking. Uh, this is funny. I was checking uh, um, Twitter for the name. I didn't come up with it. However, the first thing that came up when I typed in this guy's name and valuations was John Ehrlichman talking about 
valuations. And he looks at it and says, Tesla, $260 billion, Exxon, $176 billion, and all the other companies and, you know, all the oil companies are, are, uh, are actually falling in their, in, their, in their valuation. So there may be some outcome on this thing as well, because if the, as Tesla goes up, the, uh, the, the, the oil companies are going down. You think that's connected, though? I mean, you know, in, in all, um, sure, you, you do. Yep. If 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 some if you're looking at you know as you're looking at your own saying, I'm looking out 10, 20 years. Okay. Okay. What's the what's the what's the the the, the person who is making an argument that Tesla is going to be the biggest thing since sliced bread? Is that they're going to do away with fossil fuels? I don't know how the hell they're going to do that, by the way, because I don't know how the hell they're going to produce the electricity. Okay, but that's another story. <clears throat> so. Um, I think that there is just as much anti-sentiment in the market against the non-electrics as there is for the electrics. So there has to be a, a balance between, you know, what you, what you think on one side and what you're going to basically do on the other side. And I'm a, I'm a sentiment tracker, okay? If I'm looking at stocks, I'm looking at sentiment. And right now, the sentiment is crazy on EVs and also solar today. I mean, it's going back, rotation, rotation, rotation. You see the stuff going on. It's crazy what's going on out there. You know, from the short-term market, I'm not talking about long-term. Your own actually said it. You know, you get these people focused at, at short-term ret short returns versus the long-term returns, different investor types and different investor strategies, you know, different ways to buy it. It's retail versus non-retail. Um, but when you see a, a company that doesn't do anything, basically sell basically 250 million shares traded in a day. Okay. I mean, this is crazy. You know, this company solo 125 million shares traded in one day. It's, 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 it's I'll go back to Adrian mania. Well, you know, sorry, but that's, that's a little bit of a rant too. Well, not, not to change topics, but there's another sector that I think has also been gaining a lot of steam of late. You know, Adrian, you may note of this, that, Microcap gold stocks are up 50 to 100% in the past yeah. several weeks. You know, what, what's going on here? Well, there's a couple of things I, I would say. I mean, yes, some of these stocks have moved um, a lot. Most of the ones, typically with the gold market, let me just step back. Typically with the gold market, what you get is the big cap miners that are actually producing and hopefully making a little bit of money. They move first and then the intermediate miners move second. And last of all is the, is the exploration companies. And typically the exploration companies don't move really until you're three or four years into a bull market, unless they have a specific event. And that's what we've been seeing so far. The overall, what, are, what we call microcap uh, gold companies, the overall uh, exploration company sector has not done that well at all this year. <coughs> Excuse me. But some of the stocks have, they've moved 100 or even 2 or 300%, but they've moved because they've had an event. And that event might be a discovery, it might be a great drill hole, it might be a you know, merger with another company or, or, or whatever. And these are all positive events. Now, these are events that two years ago would not have moved the stock. In fact, people would have seen a great drill hole and the volume goes up and said, hmm, good opportunity to offload this dog that I've held for 10 years. Now sentiment has changed and good news is being reflected in stock prices. Are they overblown? I don't think so. And the reason I don't think they're overblown is, first of all, as I say, the only ones that are going up so far are the ones that actually have positive news. The ones that are just 
even good quality companies with good people that are just doing their job but haven't yet made that discovery or whatever that they're not really moving much at all <coughs> excuse me number one and the second thing i'd say is that you know exploration companies can be very difficult to value obviously with a with a producing company uh, you can you can do cash flow analysis or whatever, and with a developmental company, you can you can look at the asset value. But with an exploration company, where they don't even have a resource, let alone a reserve, it's really very difficult to do a a, a, a rational valuation basis. Um, I mean, you can look at certain factors. You can look at the history of the management. You can look at the balance sheet. You can look at uh, you know how many ounces that they have found so far and what the potential is and so on and so forth. But a lot of it is all very much back of the envelope. But the point I was I was sorry the second point I was going to make was that even with these stocks moving, they are still way 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 below the prices that they were not 20 years ago or even five years ago even two years ago. So, you know, I could name company A, for example, that's now trading at 14 cents. Uh, 10 years ago, it was at $3. Two years ago, it was over a dollar, dollar 20. It's now 14 cents. That company has increased its market cap over the last 10 years by about 80%. So there's twice as much stock out as there was. I would argue it's a better company today. This is just an example. I'm not even going to name the company because that's not the point. It's just a hypothetical example. There's lots like this. And so even though they've had to increase their, their market cap over the years, better com companies that are arguably better today, and I say better because you know they have three joint ventures with global companies as opposed to one joint venture with a global company 10 years ago, they're still selling at pennies pennies on the dollar compared with what they were. So I don't think the gold, I don't think the gold market, notwithstanding the fact that I've been a very wrong, I've, I've very um, incorrectly been calling for a correction the last few weeks, even though I think we will get a correction in the market, I don't think it's anywhere near overblown. I think it's very, very early days. So, so we're finally in that that gold bull cycle, or have, have we already been in that? You know, I mean. No, I think we're we're in it. We've really been in it since you know last August, um, but it's just been increasing. And the reason is there's a lot of reasons. You know, everybody talks about Chinese jewelry demand and central bank buying, and you know, lack of new discoveries and so on and so forth. But the number one factor is what the central banks are doing. You know, when the central banks Gold is, if you like, an anti-central bank asset. So when the central banks are, quote, doing well, whether it's their response, whether, they're, whether they should take credit for it or not, but when the economy is doing well, unemployment's strong, and interest rates are at a reasonable level, and a reasonable level means good for both borrowers and lenders. You know, interest rates are not at a good level now for people who are lending money or saving money. Um, but when interest rates are at a reasonable level and so on, then gold does not do well. Gold does well when there's monetary chaos. And I mean, if ever there was a time in history when we have monetary chaos, it's right now with QE infinity. And so gold is, is really, gold's been in the bull market long before the Fed started QE infinity, because we tend to forget this, and I'll stop on this, I'm sorry. I get excited about the Fed. 
Uh, didn't we talk about the Fed last we, time? We did talk about the Fed last time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you look at from September to February, which is before, you know, September when the um, overnight repo market blew up, until February, when people in America still thought Corona was a Mexican beer, as they like to say, we had the most rapid increase in the Fed's balance sheet ever in history. It was increasing in those four months faster than it was over 2008. So we, we were already set up for this. And if it hadn't been Corona, it would have been something else in a month or two or three or six. Um, and that's a perfect, a, a, just an absolutely perfect scenario for gold, in my view. And you look at the, the senior gold stocks, for example, they're actually producing positive cash flow now. Some of them actually have earnings. Can you believe that? This is a gold company with earnings. This is very, very unusual if you follow the market. That's why when typically when you hear people talk about gold stocks, they'll talk about ounces in the ground and they'll talk about operating cash flow. You never hear them talk about earnings. And the reason is gold mining companies don't have earnings, but they have in the last six months. So it's a very, very positive environment. And those companies, despite the increase in the price of gold, despite the fact that they're better companies today, more disciplined, despite the fact that they actually have earnings and certainly positive cash flow in most cases, they're still selling in the lowest quartile of the valuations of the historic valuation levels, the lowest quartile of valuations. And in terms of price, which is much less important to me than valuation, but in terms of price, a lot of these things would have to go up 100, 200% to get back to where they were in 2012. So, uh, and, and the gold price was basically the same in 2012. So Stephen, Kevin, and Yaron, you know, what do you guys think about this? You know, I, I know um, just from private conversations with, with a few of you guys, you know, gold exposure, natural resources exposure isn't necessarily your, you know, your, your first sector you go and look at, you know, for potential investments, but- Stay the hell know. away from it. <laughs> well, I don't well, I understand it. It's like saying it's like saying you understand forex, you know. Um, <laughs> one of the most manipulated markets in the entire universe is forex, and I, Adrian can talk about this later on. But I mean, it's all macroeconomics to me, and and you know you, you hear economists bitching and moaning at each other about what I say is right and what they say is right. You know, it's just to me, it's just not worth getting into. It's just, you know, I, I'm I'm not that smart of a guy. You know, I can. I can understand some companies, but I sure as hell can't understand global um, manipulation of different markets for the benefit of my company, my country. No, you know, I'm, that's when I sit down and say, no, never mind. I don't know. And there's like, like I said, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take the other side of that, even though I don't own gold and I've considered it um, and I want to own it at some point because I just, I agree with Adrian that it's a good long-term inflation hedge. I just, I've never really found something that I was willing to own, but like, it's not like your regular FX where governments could print as much dollars as they want. You have a very fixed stock of gold in the world and compared to the existing stock, like all the mining that all these gold miners do adds a very small percentage to the gold stock every year. So you have like a fixed supply, you know, it's growing by low single digit percent every year. And so the price today is just, it's the price per unit today is is the is times the amount of units in existence is the market cap of gold, and so if you have a very small percentage of people in the world who want to increase their allocation of gold from 
50 basis points of their portfolio to 75 basis points of their portfolio, there's no more supply. And that's what makes gold go parabolic in a period where people are worried about inflation or the devaluation of global currencies. Um, people get worried, what do they do? Like gold is a time-tested store of wealth. And if, if you, you don't need a lot of people to want to do this. Like people who own gold want to own gold. I don't think they're liquidating it in mass anytime soon. All you need is a very small percent of people to want to slightly increase their allocation to it. And that's the reason for owning it. And then, I mean, that's when you see the parabolic moves. Um, I don't own it, but I understand it. I think it makes sense to have a small percentage of your portfolio allocated to it as an inflation hedge. I just, I don't happen to own any right now. Steven, any thoughts on this? I don't have anything to add to that. <laughs> I think we have pretty well-rounded uh, feedback here. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, one, one quick follow-up that I have, because I asked, you know, Adrian, you know, I've interviewed you for years and Brent Cook and Rick Rule. Um, and, you know, one of the questions I've, I've always asked, especially early on in my career, because, you know, I would go to all the gold shows and, you know, there was, you know, the Adrians and the Brents and the Ricks who knew what they were talking about, you know, more or less, you know, economic geologists and, and just understand the market a bit better. But then you also had your conspiracy theorists of like, you know, hide your gold in, in the backyard, you know, like this, this is what you got to do, you know, like, with your gun. And, yeah, with, with your gun, you know, so like, how do you answer? Because and I feel like it, what's interesting is, you know, I go to a lot of those shows in Canada and in Canada, you know, it, mining is part, it's in every investor's blood there, you know, in Canada, Australia, you know, but U.S. investors sometimes, yes, there's a huge percentage of U.S. investors that are also very much gold bugs, understand gold, junior mining, the whole deal. But, you know, there's also fundamental investors, by the way, quick disclaimer, that's not saying that anybody who does own gold isn't a fundamental uh, investor. It just, it seems more or less that a lot of gold bugs tend to also maybe not be. So I'm just full disclaimer there. But my main question being is that- Nice like, way to back I, out of it, Bobby. That was good, right? It's crafty. <laughs> and- uh, <laughs> Very, very crafty, yeah. <laughs> thank, you. thank you, sir. By the way, I have a small allocation of gold, actually. I take that back. It's in my wife's jewelry collection and she thinks- Ah, there you go. She thinks we should allocate more to gold. She thinks we don't have to and guess what? She's a hundred percent correct. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And uh, but my main my main my main question being, I, it was very long winded. But you know, talking to that U.S. investor because it seems like mostly U.S. investors that don't that are like Kevin in in essence that like you know what I I'm not feel like I'm not smart enough even though Kevin is more than smart enough he's very much being humble there. But you know, but well, you make a really good point though. When you go to Canada, it's very noticeable. When you go to Canada and you hear you go to a retail audience, you know, young people, old people, rich people, poor people, they actually sort of understand the market. That doesn't mean they don't make mistakes. We all do. They don't buy the wrong companies, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But they understand gold, they understand the gold market, they know the difference between reserves and resources, they know there's a cost of production. They know there's such a thing as, as a mine dilution, you know, because you've got a million ounces doesn't mean you're going to be producing a million ounces. What's the metallurgy like? What's the, what's the waste strip ratio like, etc. And when you're, when you're new to this business, and I've made all these mistakes, you know, I listen to pitches from people saying, oh, we've got this amount of ounces and our cost is, you know, 800. So we make, well, now we make $1,000 an ounce. We're going to make this set. They don't tell me about the strip ratio. They don't tell me that they've got cyanide in there. I mean, mercury in their, in their rock. So it's going to cost them twice as much to refine as a, as a non, as a clean ore, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I would say um, 
it is an area that I know a bit about. I would say that um, to me is a little bit like, you know, high tech or it's a little bit like um, biotech. I don't touch biotech stocks. I just don't touch them. You could all sit and recommend something to me and I wouldn't do it because I wouldn't understand it. I wouldn't have the framework. And it's the same with gold. I think you have to have the framework to be able to fit the things in. And a bit like biotech, you know, I would, I would say the gold stocks are probably the one, certainly one of the most um, sort of uh, individually idiosyncratic stocks that there are. You can have a gold move, you can have this stock go up 200% and this one go down 80% in the same environment and to be outsider they look like they were the same freaking you know the same company why did one do well and one not so it's it's not a market i don't think it's a market for people who haven't done some homework i could agree. I, I i agree with some of that let's take it a little bit farther um i think that's very important to know what you don't want to invest in i mean i will agree with adrian again i mean the last thing i'm going to investing is is bio drugs Okay, well, I take pharma rather than saying medical devices because I'm, I'm pretty much focused on medical devices. But I know what I won't do. I won't do gold. I won't do bio drugs. I won't do REIT. I won't do financial institutions. And I can name a few more. It's just because it's not my area of understanding. It's makes, it makes it a lot easier when I can figure out what I don't want sometimes before what I do want. Right. You know, so in many, many cases, and not only that, but you know, your, your brain capacity really is, is um, you know, I think it's better when you can actually focus your attention on some of these things that you can understand. I mean, for well, example- I agree with that 100%, but, but you can always buy a physical bar as a hedge. You yeah, can of course. put 1%, half a percent, 2% of your assets into physical gold as a hedge. And that way you don't have a lot of, certainly don't have idiosyncratic risk. I mean, it'll go up if gold goes up. Sure, maybe. I mean, I don't know. I'm not even gonna, I, you know, I'll sit down and nod my head. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with you because you're a really smart guy. <laughs> All know. right, so, so, so I, wanna, I, wanna, I wanna shift gears to another topic that we had on the docket today that I think, I mean, look, we're a few months away. We're about to get some debates underway probably what, in the next few months. And, you know, um, without getting too political here, cause you know, we're, we're not here to talk politics. I, what I really wanna understand from everybody here is what your thoughts on, how this election can impact markets. You know, I mean, I think we all remember back when Trump got elected, I think before he made the concession speech, the futures were down uh, like crazy. I can't, I can't even remember, but I just remember looking at that like, I think that was the first thing I looked when I saw he won, you know, and then he made the concession speech and then the market went up, you know, but so what are you guys thoughts on, on the upcoming election in terms of how it might affect the markets? Well, I haven't talked in a while, but I'm interested in Kanye West's uh, economic policy. I, I haven't heard it yet. <laughs> so as a newest entrant uh, into the... Uh, is that sarcasm? Is foreign policy too? <laughs> I'm also interested in hearing that, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the birthday party. He's part of the birthday party. You know that, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that being said, in all seriousness, though, I mean, you know, you, you, have, you do have to worry about the economic policy. We're not just talking about the presidency, right? So I, I think... Um, to get to not get political with a political question, uh, the idea that there's uh, a balance of powers, um, that there's you know checks and balances from legislature to the executive branch, et cetera, 
least on these economic matters. And, you know, that's, uh, I, for, for me, I'd rather have that checks and balance as an investor because you just don't want um, some things from an economic perspective to happen um, quickly and not thought out well. You know, I think that's when you, when it's a non-crisis environment, which I, I think by the time fall runs around and, and, you know, next year when they're implementing some sort of these policies, um, you know, when you have a full agreement from, from kind of everyone or you have majority, you know, one party in the office, uh, the presidency and, and the legislature, there gets to be some concern there. Now, you know, on the other hand, pendulum swings. I mean, my view is pendulum swings back and forth. Uh, it, over time, it goes into, you know, whatever direction it's going to go into over 20 or 30 years. But I don't think there would have been a Trump if there wasn't an Obama. You know, there probably wouldn't have been an Obama if not for, for kind of some unhappiness at the time with G.W. Bush and, uh, and things like that. And so, you know, if there's a change here in the presidency, which seems, at least at, th at this point in time, seems, seems likely, uh, you know, it's maybe a pendulum swing back and which is, is going to have a negative effect on, uh, on, on economic uh, activity, I, I think, and tax policies and other things like that. I mean, are they going to raise the corporate tax rate again? Um, well, probably so, I would think, if, you know, if the, the Democrats both have um, the presidency and the legislature. Now, the other side of that is, you know, the Fed seems to have unlimited power at this point. So, I mean, they're probably the uh, the, what, what's larger than an elephant? I don't know, <laughs> but whatever it is, they are. Well, you raise some excellent, I mean, I, I think I agree with pretty much everything you say, except, and maybe we don't want to talk about it, I don't know. I, I, I think people are discounting the possibility of a Trump uh, presidential victory. Um, I thought Trump would win in 2016 um, for one major reason, called Hillary, and I think he has a very good chance of winning this year, but that's a different issue. I think one of the things you said, and I'm speaking as an outsider, I'm the only one here, you know, that's not American, I don't vote, so, um, because I'm not an American citizen, and so I'm, I'm speaking objectively. <laughs> um, you raise an excellent point, though, about it's not just the presidency, it's what matters to Congress. And we saw, we, we've seen so many times, we saw with President Trump, we've seen so many times, even when they do have a majority in Congress, but it's still not that easy to get their program through. Um, when they don't control both houses of Congress, it's obviously that much more difficult to get their programs through. And I think as investors, we focus a little bit too much sometimes on who's going to win the presidency. Now, the presidency, and particularly if you have a long, if you have a long primary season with different uh, front-running candidates making comments about, you know, I'm going to nationalize steel if I come into office, you know, that can have an effect on individual sectors, no doubt, and it can have an effect on the overall market. But really, the president is, I think, less important than who controls Congress, and in economic matters, as you mentioned, Steve, far less important than, than even the Fed. You're up? Yeah, I mean, so I think, I, I agree with everything both you guys said. Um, in terms of who I think is gonna win, I mean, I agree with Stephen that the polls say 
Trump is not likely to win, but I agree with Adrian that the polls in 2016 misled us as well. So like, in my opinion, it's, I guess it's a toss up right now. Um, I agree with both, you know, what both of you said about how it's not just about the presidency, it's about who controls the House and the Senate as well. And, um, and I, look, I think the US economy in particular is in like a new industrial revolution with all this, this technology wave. And I think the overall direction of the stock market is gonna depend more on the earnings trajectory of this kind of new wave of companies. And while I think changes to tax policy might have like, I don't know, a 10, 15, 20% impact of this year's earnings. So like, yeah, maybe the stock market could go down 10% if we change the tax policy. I still think at the end of the day, goes down 10, you make that up with less than one year of earnings growth for some of these companies that are growing earnings at 10, 15, 20, 25%. And it's tough to really know today how much is already discounted into this, the stock market. So like, Maybe if people didn't think um, Biden had a shot of winning, the stock market would be 10% higher today. And then if he wins and you know corporate taxes are gonna go up such that earnings should go down 15%, maybe stocks only go down five, maybe they don't go down 15 because, it, so it's, it's tough to know what's embedded in the stock prices today. There's so many factors that go into it. Um, you know, There's geopolitics, there's COVID, there's the election. So like anyone who's trying to tell you like, I'm negative on the market because I think stocks go down 10 to 15% and then resume their upward trajectory thereafter. I think it's kind of lying to you um, or lying to themselves. Um, I do think there's a lot to be cautious about in general. I just don't think you could pinpoint any one particular thing to be nervous about. Um, in terms of, I, I, and, and going back to like who wins, I think there's pros and cons to the market regardless of who wins. I mean, with Biden, for example, I think there would be less uncertainty and less volatility and just in global policy, for example, I'm not saying whether that's good or bad. I'm just saying like, I, I think there'll be less uncertainty, more predictability. I think that 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 helps asset values generally. Um, obviously, you know, if you're less friendly to companies with higher tax rates, that could be negative. So I think there's just too much to kind of try to figure out what it means. You know, and I do, I, I do remember that night when Trump won and futures were like hugely negative and then Icon probably made like a billion dollars that night because he just knew to go in there and buy the dip. Um, but like, yeah, I mean, I thought the stock market would be down on that and it wasn't. And that taught me my lesson to not not bet too hard on what politics are going to do to the stock market again. That's a, I think that's a good point, a, a good a good way to kind of set. Because really the main the main thing that I've, I've been finding interesting when it comes to maybe this upcoming election. I mean, there's a lot of things that are interesting, but especially when it comes to markets is um, our relationship with China. You know, I think that is probably take probably the most important geopolitical relationship that we have to figure out right now, because, you know, we we're we kind of been going down this path of like, you know, tariffs and, uh, you know, waiting for them to get to the table and we're going to hurt them. But, you know, I, I've, I've always kind of had this thought of like, you know, the Chinese are just going to wait it out, you know, like whether Trump wins or not, like, what do they care? They're, they're the communist country, you know, like if they got to lower what they got to lower, they'll do that in order to wait out, you know, uh, uh, an administration that may not be friendly or may not come to the table. You know, I don't know. What do you guys think about that? I mean, I, let me just, may I jump in? Because one of the things that you were talking about your own is, is, is being able to try to get some sense of what's going on, but, in, in a way, I'll offer something else. I'm not quite sure where the politics 
infects markets or whether markets affect politics. <clears throat> you know, what you said, and I, and I agree with you, and I think I'll stretch this thing a little bit further. <clears throat> um, there's an innovation wave going on in the United States that is driving massive changes in, in technology, bio, biotechnology, biophysics, everything, uh, AI, machi machine le learning. It, it, it's still to be played out. And those, so from my perspective, from an investing perspective, all I'm going to do is I'm going to try to find where the innovation wave is going and attach myself to it. It's not going to stop because of politics. That's the one thing I'm pretty sure about. The other part about it is, is that except TikTok, maybe. Okay. Yeah, TikTok. Yeah. The other part about it is, is that, you know, everybody has an opinion. You know, and I read Krugman when when he when he first first started saying, you know, what the hell's going to happen to the country? It's going to get on the shithole because Trump's doing this. He, that guy was so freaking wrong. Okay, and you could list up hundreds and hundreds of people who were so wrong. So who gets it? I mean, they're, all they're trying to do is influence you in a way. You know, so. You know, it's kind of funny. I think Stephen said something about politics not thought well, not not well thought out. You know, I see that all the time. It's never thought out well. I mean, everything's stupid. You know, so <laughs> in, in, my, in my case, it's kind of it's kind of silly. I mean, you can everybody can have an opinion because they do. Everybody has a politic because they do, and I try to support their politician the way that they should. You know, I don't care. I mean, to me, it's it's the sentiment that's going to be created as a result of the, polit the political pressures and things of that type. Sentiment to me, as well as this innovation wave that's occurring from an investor perspective, I think will drive most of the opportunities around. I mean, again, to go on, go back to Tesla. Tesla, Tesla is in a, an innovation wave that's creating a social wave that's not going to stop, regardless of who's there. Okay. Wait, I, I've never heard of Tesla. Are we talking uh, Tesla? Tesla. Oh, he refuses oh, to say the name. All right. I didn't. I didn't. Because I, I, I couldn't. I, I figured it was another one. <laughs> so you know, in Boston, what happens is that we we basically conserve our hours and put them up someplace else. <laughs> so what you do is is Fair that enough. you know when you have when you have something like summer, you know that follows spring. Yeah. You you basically take that hour and you store it for a little while, and you put it someplace else like Tesla. Oh, Tesla, I got it. So, you gotta, I, I, so in, in New England, it's the conservation of our eyes. Fair enough. <laughs> okay, Fair so enough. All right. Maybe just kind of spread them around a little bit. We let other people <laughs> use them as appropriate if they really want to. But it all come down from Adrian's country, you know, where, you know, that's where it all started. Ah, you know? Yeah, but you've taken it to, a, to new heights. Oh, yeah, we perfected it. Super that's, why it's called new, that's why it's called New England. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, Adrian, whether you're whether you're English or Scottish or what, but English, or even South, South African. <laughs> no, I'm English. Well, you, English know, you know, the interesting part of what, what you said, though, Kevin, that we're talking about Soros and the reflexivity and that type of thing earlier. I think the same thing could happen here on the political side. You know, it's not just a potential. Um, I mean, you're on made a great point that, um, OK, taxes, corporate taxes might be raised. Yeah. That in and of itself actually is not going to be too big of a deal because of the Fed actions and other things like that, but it might have a, a some effect, right? And then you have maybe some uh, unfriendly policies. Maybe you have some additional bank regulars. Maybe you have other regulations. Maybe you have, you know, just increased uh, kind of uh, involvement by by the government in and of itself begins that reflexivity issue uh, that changes sentiment, right? And I, I think the same way we've had this kind of uh, sentiment change up, the reflexivity up, just going even back to, to April, uh, we can have that and even more down. Uh, and that's where the irrationality, irrationality of the market comes in. And in today's environment, those corrections, uh, both, 
both down and the, the, um, the, the surge up, these things happen in a week where they used to take years. The yeah. other thing I want to talk about also is the, is the 2000 timeframe, now with the dot, dot bomb or dot com, however you want to use it. Um, that, was, that was, again, one of these things that was, it was driven by the markets, driven by inventor, inventors and investors. Um, and it ended up with a balanced budget, right? And whatever, and it was, you know, it was one that, I think it was Bill Clinton who was the recipient of that benefact, the beneficiary of, of that advancement. Um, so again, I go back and look at this, do, do markets affect politics or do politics affect markets? And, you know, I can see it going both ways and people, people in, in, in political environments take advantage of situations when they're in the right seat at the right time. You know, all of a sudden the world looks wonderful. So, you know, they can make, they can make whatever they want to do. <clears throat> they can make, they can make changes. They can make, they can try to make, they can try to affect change. And then, so what if they miss, you know, no one's really paying much attention. So again, I go back to some of these things and sit down and say, you know, is the innovation cycle, is the investing in the, in the innovation, the people who are make Musk, for example, he's an innovator. Um, is he a politician too? I don't know. You know, I, I think it's kind of crazy to try to mix it all together because it just, I think it flows out from everybody reacting individually and, and as, as, as it collectivizes, then that's the way it's going to change. I'm going to make a very political statement here uh -oh. um, in the sense of, you know, within reason, but I, I think Musk and, Musk and Trump are very similar. <laughs> <laughs> very similar and uh just, you know the i think there's a there's a horseshoe type of thing here where there might be different beliefs about you know certain ideological things um but tactics and other things like that there's there's a lot of similarity between the two yeah I, I I'd like to say, i'll leave that alone but i'll you know uh, you several of you have commented i mean it's obviously very important it's very obvious that this year there's two overwhelming factors uh, that is the economy, which, you know, after the lockdown could potentially be very weak in certain sectors for a long time. We've talked about that before. But also the Fed, you mentioned that, Stephen, the Fed being so much more important now than it was in 2016. So those are two overwhelming factors that are going to, um, you know, that are going to sort of dominate the scene, I think, for the next year, regardless of who comes in. But, but I would like to say, and again, I don't want to get too political here, but I, I would like to comment that we, we've sort of talked about, oh, there might be a few more regulations. Eh, maybe they'll raise corporate taxes. Let's, but let's not forget, but it was a, a, a reduction in corporate taxes. Well, first of all, the promise to cut taxes, and then secondly, a year later, the actual cut in taxes, and the reduction in regulation. Uh, but this administration, I won't say the name, this administration has reduced the federal number of pages in the Federal Register by 30%. That is stunning. And that has had an incredible effect, in my view. That has really, um, you know, um, jump-started the economy. Because let's not forget, from 2008, despite QE1, QE2, QE3, QE4, and Operation Twist, and all the rest of them, this was the slowest economic recovery in history until the current incumbent came in and cut regulation and cut taxes. And that's what jump started it. And I think if we go backwards on that, I've seen it in the resource business, but cutting regulations has been incredibly positive for the resource business. And if we go backwards on that, I think it's gonna be very negative. 
But the, the stock market is not the economy. Um, we've seen that over and over again. Um, the stock market, because of a lower tax rate, probably went up 10 to 15%, right? Because like taxes are lower, earnings go up by 10 to 15%. That I understand completely. Um, other than that, it's not like, even though from 2009 to 2015 or 16, like we didn't have 4% GDP growth years, the stock market was still going up at a pretty nice clip, right? So, and now it's been going up at a nice clip. GDP accelerated to 4% for a couple of quarters, but we had to use a, up a big chunk. I mean, we created a huge deficit to get there. And it's not like the stock, it's not like that 4% has been sustained. I know there's other issues that you could argue potentially made that 4% evaporate, whether it's trade war or other things. But like the stock market is not the economy. And to that same point, like going back to um, uh, uh, Bob Roberts' original question, I think like the two things, in my opinion, China, which is one thing that he called out that we kind of need closure on, I think um, has going to have a big impact other than COVID, like how COVID impacts the economy going forward. I think there's two things. One is China issue, which I think now has become apolitical. I think both Democrats and Republicans are coming to the conclusion that China is not very friendly to the world, to global corporations. And I think people want to address that. Personally, I think that needs to be a global solution. I don't think the U.S. could do it alone because while U.S. is the biggest trade partner with China, a company like China, let's say it's a company, could afford to lose its biggest customer. It's, it's painful. It's not ideal. But they could afford to lose their biggest customer and stay in business. They can't afford to lose all their customers and stay in business. No business can afford to lose all their customers and stay in business. So I think if we build a, a global coalition between the EU, Canada, Japan, Australia, Mexico, the US, and tell China, look, it's our way or the highway, I think they have, they'll have to play ball, but I think that could be painful. And whatever we do, I mean, it's, I think it's become clear that both Democrats and Republicans want to take that issue on. Who knows how they'll do it? That's just my view on how they should do it. But I think that could have an impact, a negative impact on the economy, however we do it. But then the other thing I think could have a really negative impact on the economy, regardless of who's in the White House, I just think the pendulum has swung too far of the economy is not the stock market. I think the stock market has done very well for a very long period of time when the average American has not done so well for a very long period of time. And that's led to a wealth imbalance and a wealth inequality that I think could only go so far before you start seeing social unrest and violence. And, and I think at some point, whether it's regulation or taxes or something, I think the pendulum does need to swing back in the other direction a little bit because like at the end of the day no matter how wealthy you are if you can't enjoy it you can't go outside with your family because you're worried about violence or whatever there's no point in being wealthy so i think like it doesn't matter what political party people are in it's in everyone's best interest to figure out how to kind of swing the pendulum back a little bit and i think because it's been so friendly to corporations for so long swinging it back by definition means doing things that would be less friendly to businesses um so I'm not saying, you know, it's all roses, you know, and, and we have a great kind of a great outlook for the economy and corporations. I'm just saying um, I'm less convinced it has to do with who's in office and what whoever in office needs to do to tackle it. Um, but I, I do think those are balanced by the fact that you do have this innovation wave that I don't think is ending anytime soon. And that's creating a lot of high paying jobs. It's creating a lot of wealth. And so I think 
I think we can afford to make these changes that we need to. Might it slow things down a little bit for equities? Yes, but I don't think it's going to like put us into a depression or anything. I think I think that's a good button on that topic because I wanted to get to one more thing before before we got out of here um, that Stephen you brought up was this idea of um, uh, you know what effect because now we're really seeing a, a, a surge of COVID cases um, across m many states in, in in the U.S. You know it's it's I'm in L.A. L.A. is now the number one hotspot I think it is now you know so you brought up this idea of how, what effect will the surge in COVID cases now have on the economy and markets you guys. You know, let's take, let's take a couple of minutes to talk about that. Yeah, I thought I'd bring up the question. I don't necessarily have the answer, though. <laughs> uh, and, you know, always happy to kind of speculate in some way, but it's very difficult from an investing perspective. Because, again, going back to this idea of sentiment, um, you know, the clearly this year shows uh, more than any just how disconnected the, the economy is from the stock market. And uh you know the the we don't know what's going to happen you know there seems to be whether this is a continuance or expansion of the first surge or some sort of beginning of a second surge or anything like that um you know it's when when does the sentiment shift right and you know what happens when we start getting sell side analyst reports for next year's estimates or the next are we just going to forget about this year's uh, re results are we going to um then maybe forget about next year's earnings estimates later this fall. I don't see that happening. And some of these industries are permanently or at least uh, will be da significantly damaged over the next few years. Um, so it's just a very uncertain time. We talked about this a lot last week about this uncertainty. And, you know, I am, I'm extremely cautious on the market myself because of that. Yeah, I'll reflect again on what Yaron said when uh, we were talking in the first session. He called it a, a, a COVID premium that some companies will actually do better because they're, they've been affected by and will affect the outcomes of these COVID issues. Um, I think he also said there's, there's going to be a, a, a subsequent COVID discounting. And we may have talked a little bit about uh, things like restaurants who right now i'm not quite sure anybody can even begin to suggest where the restaurant businesses are going to be going but um i like the i like that comment about the covid premium and the covid discounting and again it's one of those things where if you look at what's going on in the in the day-to-day -day market um covid stocks are crazy again i'm not quite sure if it's a mania but anybody who comes up with a vaccine is going to be billionaires you know so it's a it's you know, whether or not, again, I'm talking about specifically issues rather than, rather than the broad perspective of, of COVID impacts on the economy and things of that type. But from an investor perspective, I don't think you're going to get away from COVID impact anytime soon. Yep. Adrian, you're on. Um, I don't really have anything to add to that. I would say, I think you're absolutely right, but I would say that if we get a second major wave and more importantly, a second wave of lockdowns and shutdowns. And already we've seen, you know, an awful lot of um, an awful lot of the announced openings, uh, the announced easing has been put on hold or postponed. And in many cases, in many cases, going backwards, like South Florida, you know, they wanted to shut all the restaurants again. They didn't shut them all down, but they only allowed outside seating, no inside seating. They wanted to shut the, the, the gyms, but that was um, 
temporarily put on hold. But if we start seeing shutdowns, so, so already 40% of the announced openings have been either put on hold or postponed or gone backwards. And if we see another lockdown, um, apart from, I think, the unrest that's going to cause, because I don't think a lot of people are going to, sorry, I think a lot of people are not going to stand for it. But it's all, that's going to have a very significant effect on the economy overall. And so, yes, I agree with you. At the moment, we have a COVID premium and a COVID discount, but we look at different sectors and different individual companies. But another shutdown of the economy, I think, would probably narrow, let's say it would narrow the number of companies that would have a premium, and it would expand the number of companies that have a discount. You're up. I personally, again, going back to most investors and funds that I speak to, I think people are very nervous um, about this. I don't, first of all, the, the stocks that are most negatively impacted by COVID are still down a lot year to date and they're beaten down and people are very focused on this bad data. I'm not saying they can't go lower and trend lower, right? In 2007, it was very apparent there was a housing crisis and things would get worse and we really didn't bottom, you know, things were trending down for and, until March of 2009, right? We didn't bottom till then. So I'm not saying things can't get worse. I just have a hard time seeing a waterfall situation like we had in March happening again, especially with fiscal and monetary responses that the government has shown that they're willing and able to deliver. Um, I think people are nervous. I don't think people are aggressively positioned. Like maybe people are long, but I don't think people are levered long. You know, other than some retail specu speculators that, that are very levered long, but I think on average, funds are not like super levered, you know, 200% long like they were in, in February. Um, so I don't know that we're gonna have like this big degrossing. I think earnings expectations, if we have these rolling lockdowns are gonna come down. And as our earnings expectations come down, I think the stocks will come down with them. But like, I don't think we're going to see things at selling at like two or three times earnings because no one knows if they're going to survive unless they're actually not going to survive, right? If something's not going to survive, it's going to become obvious. But like, there's not going to be this panic wave where people are caught off guard and degrossing personally. I mean, obviously, it might happen. Anything could happen. I just, I don't think that happens again. I do think like rolling lockdowns are bad for the economy and what's bad for the economy is bad for earnings and what's bad for earnings expectations is bad for stocks. Um, but I just don't, I don't think we like pop a balloon one day. We walk in one day and we have a down, you know, what was, what was the worst day in March? Does anyone remember how much the market was down? We had a down like 9% day, did we? Or not? Yeah, 9% yeah. day. Um, yeah. I don't know that we, we're going to have that, those types of days, you know, going forward, especially with the government responses that we've seen or they're willing to deliver, but who knows? I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not a, an economist. And even if I was, you, you should probably shouldn't listen to me as it relates to the stock market. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, any last words on, on that? Because I think we're, we're pretty much there. So uh, any final thoughts anyone wants to share on anything, you know, COVID related or, or not? Buy gold? Buy gold. <laughs> <laughs> Because of all this uncertainty, I don't know. I don't know, okay. but absolutely. <laughs> Adrian's like, yes. For I sure. will say this is a period. <laughs> the amount of uncertainty we have discussed on this episode between geopolitics, COVID, election, regulation, all this stuff. Like, I can't remember a time in the last ten years 
where there's been this much uncertainty. I know there's always something people are nervous about, the European debt crisis one year and the, you know this another year, but like the amount of uncertainty that's sitting over the market right now, like I do think, I know value, putting aside where valuations are, which I know they're very full, but like you could make the case with earnings growth for the S&P tilted towards these secular growers and where, with interest rates where they are, like you could make the argument that like the multiple is justified, but just in terms of like sentiment and positioning, if we lift some of these clouds, I mean, I, like I think that's very bullish for the market. There's so many nervous people out there. I do think there's a lot of nervous investors out there. And like once we get past the election with a COVID vaccine and all of a sudden you lift two of those like pieces of uncertainty, regardless of who wins the election, it's just like over and we know who won already and we have a vaccine for COVID, like you could see a blow off top in the market. I mean, you could see us go lower, but like if you told me to choose which way we're going, I wouldn't, I mean, if you told me the market was going to be 20% lower or 20% higher in a year, I don't know which one I would pick. You forced me to bet. I have no idea. So just hedge it. No, I'm just kidding. Just hedge it, yeah. <laughs> just pick stocks that you think will go up, not the market. What do you mean, dude? All stocks go up. Come on. All stocks go up. That's, um, <laughs> that's sarcasm that's, for people who I think don't that's know. the biggest the wisest statement of all is is that focus on individual stocks and make your bet that's right. so with that let's uh everybody please provide uh where people can go and follow you get more information about you uh adrian let's start with you and you need to get on twitter adrian please this is enough. i'm not on twitter no en enough's enough i tag everybody else i can't tag you no, no, I'm, I'm never going on Twitter. Too, too old for that. Um, and also the SEC wants you to put disclosures on your tweets, which is a little bit difficult when you've only got 140 characters. Um, anyway, yeah, it's uh, adrianday.com will find me. And then uh, Stephen? Uh, yeah, so willowoakfunds.com is uh, the website for Willow Oak Asset Management. And then uh, my fund is Arquitos. Arquitos.com, A-R-Q-U-I-T-O-S. And, and, and Twitter? Uh, you'll find me, Stephen underscore Keel. There we go. Hey, we got, hey, people might have, there's, there's other Stephen Keels out there. You never know. You got to make sure. You know what? If, if they can't find me, then I don't want them following me. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. For, first rule following Stephen Keel. If you cannot find Stephen Keel, you cannot follow him. <laughs> <laughs> That's a unique enough name. <laughs> Fair enough. And, uh, well, you know, they might think you're a, part of the Kiel's fortune. You never know, you know? Yeah. Hey, uh, you got, yeah. Anyway, uh, Kevin, uh, you know, there's not a lot of good pricks out there. So, okay. So what's your, uh, what's your Twitter handle, please? Yeah, a good prick. <laughs> you like it, right? Oh, I love it. It's my favorite Twitter yeah. handle out there. Yeah, I mean, basically, you know, I'm I, don't really spend much, I don't spend much or any time on it. It's just something that came up, but I don't have any, any um, sources for information. I just kind of, Kevin, I mean, the whole, I'll tell you the whole reason we even started this show is so that we can get your followership up. Okay, yeah, let's yeah, get, I, I think yeah. he's just, I think we've gotten it from like 180 something. Now it's over 200. Our next goal is, is, that, is that what it is? See, I, I haven't got a clue. Oh, see, oh yeah. That's the, yeah, just tell me what right. to write. <laughs> oh, by the way, I just want to let your own know that I sent them a, I sent them an internal message on this app, on the Zoom app, but I'll give you the name anyway. The guy's name is Aswath. A S W A T H Damo Darren D O D A M O D A R A N. The guy gets into you know serious valuations. <clears throat> you know, it's, like you said, it's like he has an opinion on, on Tesla, a very strong opinion on Tesla. 
So it's well worth, he's a professor of economics at Columbia or something or NYU or something like that. I kind of forget, but that's his focus, valuation uh, using a very, very strict methodology. Appreciate it. I'll, I'll yep. look into that. Yep. And your own, where can people find you? Um, you guys can find me on my Twitter handle. It's one main capital, number one, the word main, M-A-I-N, capital. You better link to it so people can find it easily when you tweet this out. And um, you have my email address, my website on there, and feel free to DM me. I'm always uh, responsive over DM. So awesome. Well, thanks, guys. This was a lot of fun. Really appreciate it. And uh, maybe we'll say, hey, let's all let's get the band back together again next week. Why not? Right? There you go. Thank you very much. All right. Have a good, good. weekend, guys. Thanks, Bobby.